Hello and welcome to The Better Business Show with me, Tom Idle. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up this week. We can, in New York City, put any type of plastic, regardless of what it is, whether it's a, you know, a water bottle or whether it's a giant plastic beach chair, we can put it into a big blue bin. And the assumption for everyone was that if you put it into the blue bin, it's being recycled. Hmm. But what we actually found out, about 7.5% of that plastic gets processed and sent to, you know, recyclers. Everything else, everything else goes to the landfill. Yes, we're going to hear from Gregor Gomery, CEO of Biofusion this week, the company that converts 100% plastic waste into an alternative building material. Stay tuned. Yes, hello, welcome back. Uh, episode 29 of the Better Business Show. Thanks for coming back to us, uh, to our loyal listeners. Thanks for tuning in again. To those of you that are coming to us for the first time, welcome. And yeah, I hope you enjoy the show. And don't forget to check out the back catalogue. If you head over to uh, betterbusiness.show, you'll find all previous 28 episodes of uh, this podcast. Uh, plenty of insight, plenty of inspiration from the, the various businesses that we've spoken to over the week. So yeah, get yourself through those uh, and, and enjoy. So this week, um, yeah, the usual format, uh, we're going to hear from uh, Joss Tantrum uh, as he finalises his series of big ideas for a sustainable future. I hope you've been enjoying that series. Uh, plenty of really big ideas that Joss has been exploring through his, his essays uh, across the weeks. Um, so we've got the final one of those. Uh, we'll also be checking in, as ever, with Vicky Knowles and getting a quick roundup, uh, just a 10-minute roundup of all the latest developments across the world of better business. Um, and, and obviously, we've got our big uh, story of the week, uh, which is by Fusion. So that's coming up very soon. So this week, we're going to meet Gregor Gomery. He's the CEO of Biofusion, which is a startup that Gregor believes is about to take advantage of what he describes as a perfect storm brewing as the world wakes up to the enormous problem of plastic waste filling up our oceans. It's an issue that we've discussed many times on this show, and for good reason. We've all heard the statistics. Ellen MacArthur's foundation uh, says that by 2050, there's going to be more plastic in our oceans than fish. Quite extraordinary. And around, well, between 4 and 12 million tonnes of plastic comes out into our waters every year. And it's no longer a problem that can be ignored. And in the throes of developing a process for creating construction blocks out of straw bales, uh, a New Zealand-based inventor and engineer, Peter Lewis, had a light bulb moment. What if all of this plastic waste that ends up in our oceans and onto our beaches could somehow be put to good use? And he played around with some ideas and soon realised that, that plastic boasted similar thermal properties to straw bales and he thought well if it was presented in the right way could they be used in construction too a prototype technology was created but for a variety of reasons the idea stalled mainly due to fundraising issues fast forward several years and Gomery has put together a team uh, and, and well and truly revived the concept and buoyed by a landscape of renewed interest in environmentalism at uh, the perfect storm that he describes um, he's finally realising Lewis's original vision. 
So I got Gregor on the line and started our conversation by asking him to give us his elevator pitch. Here's Gregor. Essentially, we started with a technology platform um, that directly addressed the excess of plastic waste for use as an input. And so I think it's, it's a slightly different way to approach social or environmental challenge where you look at the problem and then you're like, oh, uh, I bet we could figure out some creative, innovative way to handle this problem. We actually started with, with a technology platform. And the reason for that is our inventor, the inventor of our process, um, is an engineer in New Zealand, and he was in the process of patenting straw bale construction which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. It was, it was sort of a, a quasi-hippie way to build houses where you use literal straw bales, the kind of throw to cattle, um, mm-hmm. and you put them onto rebar posts and you tighten them down um, using post tension. And, uh, and based on that, you, uh, you create a really solid thermal barrier. And although they look like something that uh, the big bad wolf could, could blow down before you <laughs> actually put mortar on them, they actually are an incredible thermal barrier. They're better than using, for example, brick um, or just wood. You don't need insulation. So anyway, he was patenting these processes in New Zealand, and he saw a news program um, about how, even though it was such a small island, uh, you know, such a small community, such a small population, they had so much plastic uh, waste that couldn't be recycled that they didn't know what to do with it. And he just had one of those giant light bulb above the head aha moments where, uh, where he said, you know, I bet that there's ways that we could process this plastic, we could shred it, things we could do to it that it would mimic the way that straw bales are being used in construction, and potentially it could be this very legitimate building material, um, especially from a thermal standpoint. And so he, you know, started following that pathway. And we, uh, you know, he ended up building a prototype uh, platform and putting it to use in New Zealand, um, for a variety of reasons, they were unable to uh, kind of you know continue to raise funding and continue to keep the project going. And so then we found out about it. We purchased the IP and the platform itself and started looking at ways that we could bring it to the states and and kind of launch on a much larger scale. Um, and you know our timing was much, much better. Because at the time when he, you know, started his invention, started working on the platform, people weren't as concerned. There wasn't as much media attention on plastic in the ocean, for example. Um, The waste management industry was going through a heyday of high oil prices so they could recycle what they wanted, they could plant for what they wanted. And right now, you know, is kind of a perfect storm when you look at plastic. Um, The amount of plastic has you know, at this point, far surpassed the tipping point where it's so visible that you, I mean, even if you want to not see it, you can't sweep it under the rug, metaphorically. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, the price of oil has plummeted. So all of these giant titans in waste management are, you know, I wouldn't say that they're folding, but they're certainly folding parts of their companies, and it's, it's much more expensive for them to try to sell, uh, you know, recycled plastic flake than it is for them to, you know, for the plastic manufacturers to just make plastic again. So yeah. that's a very, very long way for me to say that. It's 
It's the perfect elevator pitch. I mean, but uh, the, I mean, so, so I mean, you're right. It's all about timing, and, and as you say, there's a there's a perfect storm brewing. We seem to be talking about ocean waste every week at the moment. But every week, right? The, the, yeah. So it's it's basically you've, you're using kind of the fundamentals of straw bale technology, and you're kind of re reapplying that to make use of plastic waste. I mean, how, how do you how do you get the ocean waste in the first place? Right. So, so originally we were looking at partnering with uh, the waste management industry. And if you look at the way that plastic is collected in, in urban areas, um, in New York City, for example, is a, great, is, a, is a great example. We can, in New York City, put any type of plastic, regardless of what it is, whether it's a, you know, a water bottle or whether it's a giant plastic beach chair, we can put it into a big blue bin. And the assumption for everyone myself included until I got involved in this, in this project, was that if you put it into the blue bin, it's being recycled. Mm. But what we actually found out is that that blue bin gets picked up, it gets taken to a large processing center here in Brooklyn, and they sort out about 7.5% of that plastic, and that gets processed and sent to you know recyclers. Everything else, everything else goes to the landfill. Right, right. So... It's insane. So really, we're talking about, you know, 33 million tons annually of plastic that is what's been collected as recyclable plastic. It's I call it the, it's the, it's the myth of curbside recycling. Mm. You know, we imagine mm. we're doing something good. We imagine we're putting it in there. So everything else goes to landfill. It's hugely expensive. In 2013, it was $1.5 billion that the U.S. spent putting plastic in the ground, just burying it. Um, and we realized as a company, we were starting to talk to, uh, you know, different potential investors and we were starting to go beyond verbal agreements with some of these waste management companies. And just like everyone else, we were being barraged by all these images of oceanic plastic. And my background happens to be in marine biogeography. We're all very conservation oriented. And, uh, my, my, response to every conservation organization that contacted me was that's where our heart is but unfortunately first we have to commercialize once we commercialize we get to prove a concept then we can start talking about ways that we can work together to process the plastic that you're seeing in hawaii or the philippines or anywhere else then we can talk about it and we we had our own kind of aha moment where we were like what if that's where our heart is and we know the plastic is there, mm. then why don't we shift focus a little bit and create an alliance of like-minded nonprofits who are already handling it. They're already collecting the plastic. Right, that's right. Um, yeah. And that's what we decided to do. And so I had heard of the work of, a, of an organization in Hawaii um, called uh, Sustainable Coastlines Hawaii, and they were doing an incredible job, um, for especially for a grassroots organization, of collecting plastic on a couple of, you know, on Oahu and one of the other islands. Um, and they were coming away with tons and tons and tons annually just from grassroots, just people picking up plastic off the beaches. Wow. And the reason I chose Hawaii wasn't just because I want to go hang out in Hawaii, which happens to be true, <laughs> um, but, you know, it's also because the, uh, it's a, it, Hawaii is a, a very, very large chain of islands, and the northwestern Hawaiian islands is a huge protected marine area, and we consider it sort of the North American Galapagos. It also sits right at the corner of the giant Great Pacific garbage patch, you know, the ocean gear right there, 
where all of the, the plastic waste is circulating um, with an epicenter at Midway Island. And, right. you know, most of us at this point have seen the imagery of dead albatross with, you know, stomachs and gullets just full of plastic mm. waste. Mm. And so I knew that we would be touching this. Uh, what I didn't realize at the time was that Sustainable Coastline Hawaii is also working up in that area in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, and they're pulling out, you know, hundreds of tons of derelict plastic fishing nets out of the water that are just destroying the reef system, and they don't know what to do with it. It's completely not recyclable. It's sitting, it's just sitting in the sun with dead fish, dead birds in it, and they're trying to figure out what to do with it. <laughs> and we said, you know what? This is a lot of plastic that we can process. Mm. So that's our first goal. That's where we're heading. Okay. Um, we're heading, we're bringing the machine up there, and we're going to start processing these nets. Uh, we're going to turn them into blocks. We very much hope that we can put those blocks directly to use uh, in, in you know, the more populated areas of Hawaii, um, uh, even if it's just for temporary shelter for the homeless or, mm. or some environmental construction, that's, that's the goal right now. Yeah, so, so the machinery and the, the processing machinery is done on site on the, on the beaches rather than you know, the rubbish being shipped back to the U.S., is, is that right? That's right, it's mobile. Okay. So if you think of it as, it, it lives in a shipping container, and we ship it with empty shipping containers, and we set it down, we get it set up, and we start shoveling the plastic waste directly into it, and out of the other side, if everything is working correctly, you know, come these, these, uh, these plastic blocks that look like large Legos, for lack of a better uh, example. They're like large Legos that have been configured to be the standard size of, uh, like, cement block. Normal, like, we call them cinder blocks here. Okay. Cement blocks that you would use for construction. And you, and you call them replast, don't you? We do, yeah, we uh, do. And what, what, what are the characteristics? I mean, obviously, it's, it's plastic waste, but, I mean, how do they kind of compare with those traditional concrete blocks? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, because it's plastic, it has memory which cement doesn't, right? So by memory, I mean if you stacked up plastic blocks and then you put a very heavy weight, like the weight of a roof, for example, on them, they're going to compress in a way that that cement does not compress. And so that's that's both a positive and not necessarily a positive. I won't call it a negative, but, uh, you know, initially these were, these were uh, created in New Zealand where there are a lot of earthquakes. And so they don't suffer earthquake damage because they can just kind of bounce back, as it were. Right. But because they're plastic, we don't look at them from a structural strength standpoint the same way. So we wouldn't want to build an eight-story office block out of them. Um, but what they do have is an incredible, incredible uh, thermal characteristics. So whether that's for sound, for sound attenuation, or whether that's for heat transfer, um, we envision using them... Um, with a normal building frame, so whether that was steel or something else, and then using them as fill. Yeah. Uh, initial testing has shown, you know, that they blow traditional cement blocks out of the water for thermal. So, you know, for example, if we built a shed out of cement blocks, uh, you know, with a roof and with a door and everything, and, uh, you know, we, we sat there in the winter, the internal temperature would be the same as the external temperature. We heated it up. It would take a little while before that heat inside dissipated, and it was once again as cold inside as it was outside. But because the thermal characteristics of this are so good, it actually acts like a barrier. So um, they can be used as fill. Um, we're, we're looking at a lot of 
a lot of uh, you know potential roadworks. Yeah, we'd really yeah. like them to be used within the communities that the plastic is sourced. For me, that's the sexiest thing about this whole entire project is that, in theory, if everything works correctly, we're looking at the absolute definition of a circular economy, where a community you know, uses its plastic waste to rebuild the community itself. So they throw a plastic ball away, it gets processed into a block, that block is used on the roadway or, you know, in a community center or, you know, in a variety of different applications, and it all stays very, very local. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess I wonder what, what the sort of the, the toughest challenge for you right now is. Obviously, you're, you know, taking care of the problem of, of, of plastic waste. You've used your machinery to get these blocks built. I wonder whether you know the next phase is actually the hardest bit, where you're trying to convince buyers of the of the end product. Is is that proving to be the case? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think the hardest thing for a company in our stage is is that it's a risky investment to fund proof of concepts because mm. you know we have initial testing done, which has been very very positive. Um, we're very confident that you know we can continually upgrade. The, uh, both the technology itself, you know, that actually processes the plastic and the, you know, the replast blocks. But at this stage, what a lot of traditional investors want to see is it works well enough that I can make a return on my investment. And right yeah. now, you know, we're like, okay, well, let's just get it out there. Let's get it processing. No matter yeah. what, you know, we can process this plastic and then, you know, we can figure out ways to bring those you know, bring the end product to a variety of uses. You know, there's a lot of testing that needs to happen for a building material, and that testing is expensive. Um, so that has been our biggest challenge is kind of keeping it funded yeah. uh, right now as we move it forward. Um, you know, the next step should, in theory, be a little bit easier because once proof of concept is completely done and we say, okay, this is where we can use the blocks we know, we'd like to open source everyone, you know, absolutely builders and developers and, you know, do-it-yourselfers, like, let's use these blocks and figure out ways that, you know, we can, we can kind of creatively bring them to different uh, building applications, then people will say, okay, awesome, we want a machine. You know, yeah. we want to bring those machines. There's been a lot of international, tons and tons of international um, attention on it, but I think we'll focus primarily on, um, on uh, conservation conservation-related projects right now where communities can actually potentially uh, use it as an economic boost as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, you'll know better than anyone that there's you know, plenty of companies out there similar to yourselves making use of waste, repurposing it, uh, trying to create yep. alternative products. Uh, and, and a lot of them actually have, have had great success in striking up some deals with big corporates that can really sort of help them scale up and, and you know, and commit to, to big numbers. Uh, of the end yep. product, I guess that, that is a route to market. I mean, who who is your audience? Who are you trying to kind of get the end product to? You say you want to keep it in communities. I mean, is it is it about going to to local authorities, or is it about you know targeting big construction companies, or who who are you really sort of trying to sell the end product to? That's that is is a, kind of a big question. You know, initially, you know, we envisioned being able to bring the product to a very wide audience. Um, you know, even to the extent of bring it to like I don't know if you guys have Home Depot over there, but you know, the large yeah. building supply consumer consumer focused building supply companies. I think the reality of the situation is that this is better suited 
in many ways to bring it to the council, as you said, to bring it to the councils, bring it to government agencies yeah. who are who, who they who we've found actually are making a lot of their purchases from the Home Depots, you know, from the right, right. from the consumer facing. They're like, oh well, we need you know two hundred million cement blocks. Let's go buy them at Home Depot, where we can say, okay, maybe we can actually give you an alternative right here. Um, that you know has been created locally. You can use them in building projects. We've had some really fantastic conversations with government agencies um, yeah. on the potential use right there. And uh, you know, for us, really, it's about the the technology itself more than the replast. The replast is, yeah. you know, we, we very much hope that the replast is uh, the means to an end. Yeah. The end being you know, the end of landfilling plastic, the end of plastic pollution. Um, we fit very, very nicely onto onto the waste management chain, where in a perfect world, there are you know three or four types of plastic polymer in the waste stream that are being recycled successfully. Whether you're mm-hmm. making threads, like a lot of companies are doing very successfully, or whether you're turning it back into new products, and then there are a couple different kinds of plastic waste that probably aren't the best for our process. We can use every polymer. But yeah. probably like polystyrene, you know, a lot of the blown foam. I, you know, I don't, I don't love that. I mean, I think we should get rid of it altogether. But um, we can use everything else, and then anything that remains that isn't being turned into replast then can go into pyrolysis yeah. and plastic waste. You know, which is still, which it seems to me to be getting a lot cleaner and a lot more realistic than it was, you know, even just a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and really, you know, you want companies, you want local authorities and councils to, to be creative, to understand what the product is and then kind of come up with their own ideas. I mean, you know, given the visual identity of, of Replast, you know, all these plastic bottles crushed into these perfect little blocks, like you say, Lego, like Lego type blocks. I mean, they're visually they're brilliant, aren't they? And they kind of represent exactly what you're trying to do. You, you kind of want your end your end audience to kind of get creative in how they might apply them in, in communities everywhere. That's spot on. That's exactly, exactly right. Yeah, I mean, really, we want to open source it. Yeah. Um, we don't want to say, this is replast, and this is what it does, and this is what it looks like, and you can't change it. Um, you know, we, we sort of set the, we set the parameters for what the end product looks like because cinder blocks are the most widely used construction material on the planet. Mm. But, but that doesn't mean that we can't completely change that around. We're looking at ways that we can potentially... Um, you know, mod out sort of prefab walls for low-income housing, where we would we would actually use larger molds and dyes on the machine to kind of print out almost, if you will, these larger wall sections, and then we put them together. And in theory, one of our one of our executive team is a is a developer here in Brooklyn. In theory, we could mod out these walls and put up you know really beautiful, very very sustainable. Um, you know, low-income housing in the span of a day as opposed to a building project built much longer. We really want to open source it. You know, there's a lot of, of much smarter people out there, you know, than we are who, you know, it's just one person, right, probably like an 11-year-old who picks it up and goes, I bet this would be awesome as, you know, and you're yeah, like, oh, yeah, yeah that's the world. Exactly. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, what, what's your background, Gregor? I mean, where, where did you, uh, what were you doing before this? So my background is in sustainable product development for the most part. I spent the majority of my, my adult life working in the travel industry. 
and okay. actually developing sustainable travel products internationally, um, you know, working on ways that we could be do, building like kind of community-driven travel products and then selling them in the West and the UK and the US and everywhere else. And then I've been doing a lot of, you know, kind of different scale um, sustainability projects within travel, within food. And I found out about Bifusion through a colleague of mine and took a look at it. And my first reaction uh, was, was that I didn't really believe that this hadn't been kind of thought of in this way before. So I looked at it, I looked at the prospectus, and I was thinking, it's impossible that no one said, why don't we, <laughs> why don't we shred it? Why don't we look at using it as a building material instead of throwing it away? And I spent about three months researching it and kind of digging deep into what I thought were the potential challenges of plastic as a building material. And I, you know, I'm the first to admit I'm not a polymer scientist. So I had to learn a lot about that. And I do have a background in marine biogeography and had worked on a lot of conservation projects um, internationally, and so was no stranger to the amount of plastic, you know, certainly firsthand the amount of plastic in the ocean. And uh, by the end of the three months of research, I was thinking, I'm in, I'm absolutely, I'm in, we can do this. We can actually process this into a legitimate, a legitimate product. So it's been a, it's been a pretty exciting ride. Yeah, to, to be honest, lots of the companies, you know, we speak to, that's often, you know, the most common reaction is, why hasn't this been done before? And why isn't everybody doing this? And this is another one of oh, those, insane, you know. it's insane, right? It's, uh, it's insane. It really it is. It's <laughs> like, oh, it just takes that simple, that simple <laughs> idea, you know. And I imagine in my head that there's lots of ideas that people are having that are like, oh, someone thought of that and it must not have worked or it would already exist, right? Yeah. But yeah, like yeah. you find out, what? We're yeah. very involved. We're very involved with an organization here called the Clean Tech Open, which is a fantastic, fantastic accelerator program um, that was that was started in the Northeast and now is expanded nationwide. And they work with uh, with clean technology startups to help with kind of the the nuts and bolts of entrepreneurialism and getting things off the ground and understanding. Uh, you know, that you actually need product market fit, that you actually need to understand what people are going to buy, you need to understand building out a team. And that's one of, it's just one of the, the things that has been just a recurring theme as I've worked with them is that it really just takes one person with one idea, just looking at things slightly differently, you know, mm -hmm. with just a slightly skewed perspective that can disrupt entire industries. Yeah. Um, you know, really just because something is the status quo and is the way things have been done, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't actually mean that there's not a million better ways to do it. That would be better, you know, for, I mean, for, for people, planet profits for all of it, you know? Yeah. So it's, yeah. uh, it's, yeah, it's cool. It's definitely cool. I mean, you've got it written on your website, you know, I think you say four to 12 million tons of plastics ending up in our oceans every year. Uh, I mean, it's just, a, it's such a massive, massive challenge, isn't it? Do, do you ever feel like, uh, we're, we're just never going to solve this, you know, it's just too big. I mean, do, how, do, how do you kind of stay positive and, and hopeful? Uh, that is a fantastic question. And it's actually a question that I don't think gets asked closely. I mean, it, it should be asked constantly because it's, you know, it's sort of almost a human condition. Right, that when something is overwhelming, you stick your head in it. You're like, okay, you know what? I don't even want to deal with it anymore. I'm not even <laughs> going to talk about plastic pollution anymore because it's too vast. 
um, you know, you start to see you start to see kind of baby steps, and you start to see a lot of people rallying around changing mindsets. And I think we see that, you know, in certainly in environmental issues, we see the social issues, and things are changing very rapidly in a lot of ways, um, which can be, you know, very scary. But, uh, you know, for me, I can pick up a replast block and I can see all the little pieces of plastic. And when, you know, I can also visualize in my head, um, you know, something very, very clear as an illustration, which is this giant, giant, 100-ton pile of plastic sitting on a runway on an island in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands with, like, you know, with Hawaiian monk seals lying on the sand next to it, and then mm. imagining that kind of, like, being broken down into smaller and smaller pieces, and, you know, then just not being there anymore, and those blocks being somewhere else. Um, you know, if I can continually visualize steps in that way. Okay, this is what we have. This is what we need to do. We can get to this place. I think that, um, you know, I, I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful about about the future, the way that we handle, you know, these challenges, these waste issues, um, which just seems silly more than anything. You know, it's not even about being frugal. It's just, it seems so wasteful. <laughs> it just seems like, well, out of sight, out of mind, we're, we're too small a planet now. You know, it was for most of human experience, out of sight, out of mind was something very, very real because you could just walk away. And the ocean, you could throw anything in the ocean, you would never see it again, right? But now, you know, now the way that we're, we're interconnected, I think that it's, you know, we've, we're far past that point now. Yep. So it's, uh, it's something that, you know, it's, things are going to have to start changing. Um, I think the international pressure, you know, for good and for bad from things like social media, Mm. will start to really impact the way that, you know, certain certain countries are handling plastic production, um, you know, illegal activities, uh, you know, not just having to do with plastic, but having to do with illegal fisheries. Um, you know, there's some pretty cool stuff happening based on, uh, I mean, I don't even know how to phrase that, based on sort of like almost like a global mindset, yeah. you know, of what's yeah. right and what's wrong. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we start chipping away, you know, I would hope that in my lifetime we could see significant improvement, um, and maybe it takes way longer than that, who knows, but it's mm. just, you know, that, that one step at the start of a journey, really, yeah. at this stage, but we're, we're getting there. Gregor Gomery there, CEO of Biofusion. Uh, I love that idea of open sourcing replast so that anyone else can, can decide what this product is and, and how it might be used uh, in their own applications. If you've got any ideas, then let me know and I'll, I'll certainly pass them on to, to Gregor and the team over there at Biofusion. Um, I'm also keen to hear from you uh, if you've got other organizations uh, that you know of, or maybe it's your organization, um, that you think would be a great guest to have on the Better Business Show. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Email me, tomidle at narrativematters.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter at tomidle. Find me on LinkedIn as well. It's a question that's posed quite a lot in the world of, uh, sort of sustainable business. Everyone's looking for inspiration from great businesses out there. It's not an easy one to answer. And, uh, and I sometimes ask my guests, sometimes not. Um, but who are the great organizations out there uh, beyond the usual suspects that you look at and think, God, they are doing a great job. Uh, I'd love to have them on the show because I think we can really share, con you know, continue to share some some great stories of of companies that that might not be familiar with many people, 
Uh, and that's very much the premise of this show. So if you can help me out with that, uh, send me a note and, uh, and drop me a line on that. That'd be great. In the meantime, you can find us on iTunes and where you can you know, subscribe to the show. Uh, we're also available on SoundCloud and Deezer and Stitcher and TuneIn. Uh, any of your preferred media players do uh, subscribe or like us. And of course, if you like what you hear and you're enjoying the show and what we do here, please do tell your friends and family and colleagues and get them to subscribe uh, or give us a shout out on social media. We'd really appreciate that. Right, before we get an update from Vicky Knowles uh, with our usual roundup of news about what's happening, uh, let's hear one final time from Joss Tantrum. Uh, as you'll know, if you've been tuning in these past few weeks, we've been running a segment of the show uh, called Our Big Ideas for a Sustainable Future. Uh, we've been working with a team at Terrafinity. Uh, for those of you that don't know, it's an international consultancy that works with companies to help them develop leadership in ecological, social and business value. Uh, and we've been helping them in support of the launch of a, a brand new series of ebooks that they've put together, uh, offering thoughts, provocations, and big ideas for how we might create a sustainable future on a planet of 9 billion people. Uh, so we asked Joss, uh, a founding partner of Terrafinity, to share with us his big ideas, which he's kindly been doing over the last few weeks. Uh, all of these ideas taken from this brilliant series of new books. Uh, and we have the fifth and final instalment of the series for you right now. So here's Joss. Every day we're assailed with bad news about the environmental and social challenges coming our way. By 2050, we're told, we will have many billions of hungry mouths to feed and less food, water or fertile soil available to support them. We are also constantly told that the time to take action is running out. The inertia of our current industrial and economic models means that, even if we choose to change course, we will be experiencing the negative after-effects of current practice for years to come. All of this bad news may well come to pass, but it is also worth striking a note of optimism about the amazing capacity the human species has for creativity, innovation and hope. However, do we have enough time left to act? We don't always have to think of time as a linear pathway towards the future. Many millions of years are lived by human beings every day, just imagine if we can harness and make use of that time. There are currently around seven and a quarter billion people living on the Earth, living seven and a quarter billion days every diurnal cycle. If we divide this number by 365, we find the equivalent number of years lived by the species every single Earth day. Humanity lives 19,903,247 years every single day, and with each one that passes, our species' time grows. That is a lot of time. Surely some more constructive use could be made of it. Time is only running out for a sustainable future if we decide not to make use of the abundant human time we have available each day on this Earth. It's time to start thinking of radically different types of organisations and initiatives, those that can utilise and benefit from parallel time. Every endeavour, organisation or initiative capable of coordinating the action of 36,500 staff or volunteers would be a 100-year day enterprise, making achievements possible that might otherwise take a whole century. Similarly, 365,000 people working together could achieve a 1,000 years of activity in a single day, making a 1,000-year day initiative, endeavour or organisation. While interesting as a fact, it's of course more difficult to achieve coordinated things in parallel than linearly. However, what if it is not time that we lack, but coordinated will and intent? 
are currently in the golden hour for humanity. In medicine, this is the period following injury where medical intervention stands the best chance of preventing death. For our current way of life, this golden hour consists of a number of characteristics. The knowledge, technology and science that provides us with a reasonably accurate and reliable picture of the state and health of the planet. The deployable resources and intelligence that would enable us to either fix problems we can see or arrest the continuing injury we give rise to. And finally, the social stability and democratic organisation that would allow a coordinated and concerted effort should we choose to bother. Perhaps, spurred by our recognition of Homo sapiens' golden hour, the idea of parallel time might provide the seed for a coming sustainable golden age. What if the sheer number of people on the planet could be seen as an asset to build a sustainable home for our species? It is sometimes difficult to look at the future with hope. Perhaps it is time to look at the present as an abundant source of time just waiting to be used to deliver a sustainable future. Joss Tantrum there, founding partner of Terrafinity. Thank you so much to Joss and Dom at Terrafinity for sharing with us your big ideas series and for supporting The Better Business Show these past few weeks. Great to have you on board. Uh, the, the Towards 9 Billion ebook series is out now and can be downloaded for free at the Terrafinity website, which is www.terrafinity.com. Head over to the homepage and you'll see the link to the books. Free to download, as I say, and they really are a great read. Okay, let's get a roundup of the latest news from across the world of better business and find out who's doing what and why with Vicky Knowles. Vix, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Tom? Yeah, I'm very well, very well. Um, tell us what's been going on in the world of better business. Um, yeah, what are you starting with? Okay, so you may have seen uh, Zara plastering media headlines recently uh, with indie illustrators accusing um, them of stealing their designs. So dozens of designs have allegedly been stolen from over 20 indie artists. And if you've seen the comparisons there, they are pretty similar. Um, so an artist in Brooklyn, uh, Adam J. Kurtz, has created a website called shoparttheft.com. And you can go on there and you can see the artist's designs versus Zara's so-called copycat products. Um, and then another artist, um, Tuesday Basson, has also had a bit of a bad time of it all. So she took to Instagram and basically said, I had my lawyer contact Zara and they literally said, I have no base because I'm an indie artist and they're a major corporation and that not enough people even know about me for it to matter. Um, she lost two $2,000 in legal fees kind of David and Goliath sort of esque. Um, but a lot of people have taken to social media to vent about it, you know, atting Zara and saying, you know, you need to sort it out. But um, Zara has since removed many of the offending items from its website and its parent company, Inditex, has responded to various media outlets saying that it takes all claims concerning third party intellectual property rights very seriously and its legal team is in contact with Tuesday Basson's lawyers to clarify and resolve the situation as swiftly as possible. Wow, so what wow. do you think about that? Well, it's, well it's, it's another really good example. I think we, we spoke about this last week, which is about the power of social media in affecting change and uh, 
and yeah, I mean, companies like Zara, they can't, they can't ignore this. I mean, maybe they did before. I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? Uh, but, but the power of social media has, uh, has forced them into action, which is great. Um, but this must, I mean, this sort of stuff must be going all the time. But it's a really interesting story. We'll put the links in, in the show notes as ever, as well as all the other uh, reference points from from the news we're going to discuss. But it's an interesting one, Vix. Yeah, thanks for that one. Um, for me, um, I'm just going to point you to a, a new PwC report uh which points to the eight pieces of tech that we cannot ignore um pwc not you know the, the best known for issuing interesting reports very much produced with an auditor's lens uh most of the time but this is pretty interesting it's been profiled by management today and i think a few others have sort of picked it up uh but it's identified the, the mega trends businesses need to be prepared for uh, I mean some of these you could probably guess uh, if you think of the, the eight big the big things going on right now the first the most I guess prominent in the in the, in the zeitgeist right now is is ver- uh, augmented reality which is obviously what Pokemon Go is built on uh, so you've got that you've got things like drones uh, and they talk about whether the sky is going to be filled with these kind of drones delivering parcels for the likes of Amazon and others uh, could well become a reality soon. Uh, things like blockchain, which I think we've we've mentioned before on the show, which has huge uh, potential for uh, transparent supply chain development, where you've got blockchain technology, which is is the technology that behind Bitcoin, the digital currency. Uh, but this idea of creating this distributed de- database, where you have a kind of a an electronic ledger. Uh, for for all different components to a supply chain you can kind of track it more easily I think that's fascinating Uh, so you've got that you've got things like robots which I think we've again we've we've probably spoken about all these things on the show in the last few weeks Uh, but the concept of of improvements in robotics uh, things like 3D printing which I don't really know whether it's it's taken off in the way that everyone thought it might Mm. Um, but it's an interesting list virtual reality is on there as well and again lots of the, the sort of video game uh, developers really sort of trialing and piloting virtual reality technology which has been around for for years but i think they're just getting a bit more sophisticated with it but really interesting list is worth checking out again i'll, I'll put the link in the, in the show notes yeah I, I think this whole thing about pokemon go um you, you don't have the app do you i did i yeah, I, I did check it out <laughs> last week actually Was it um, fun? i haven't i haven't used it I, my friends have used it and i've kind of just sort of been looking over their shoulder well, it, it, is, it is fun. It is fun. Uh, I don't know if I've told you before, Vix. My, my son and, and I, we do a lot of um, geocaching. Which oh, I yes, we have said. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it reminds me of that. I mean, it's great because it just gets people out of the house and, and discovering their local environment. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think, I think it's great. I mean, I don't. Uh, there's, there's obviously been quite a bit of backlash on social media, people looking at their phones, really not really looking at where they're going. But I think it's, uh, yeah, I, think the, I like the idea behind it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've just read, it's quite interesting, um, that apparently bookies have tipped Bristol to be the first city in the UK to ban it. No. Uh, with six to one odds. Seriously? Mm. Yeah, when I was kind of like, well, you know, why, why we, you know, that seems a bit ridiculous. But yeah, people um, walk into lampposts, fall off skateboards, <laughs> you know, t- fall down holes in the pavement because <laughs> they're not looking where they're going um supposedly people can use the app to lure in unsuspecting victims i don't really know um, yeah, yeah. but yeah so if it's going to be banned somewhere supposedly bristol is the uh 
Well, top. You, better do- you better download it quick and start using it this weekend then, Vix. Yeah, I better. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so the other big news from my side that I picked up, and it's a story picked up by just about everyone everywhere. I know it, was, it made the, the front page of The Guardian uh, last week. Um, the uh, 63-year-old former Swiss Air Force pilot and a hypnotherapist, uh, five years his junior, with a penchant for hot air balloon exploration, uh, completed a round-the-world trip in a solar-powered airplane, um, and and they predict that within a decade, commercial flights with electric aircraft will become a reality. So this is Bertrand Picard um, and his colleague. They touched down in the Solar Impulse in Abu Dhabi last week, completing the final leg of a 16-month multi-stage journey, and uh, yeah, for 41, no, 43,000 kilometers. Um, they've done in this plane and they reckon yeah within within a decade we'll have more electric planes in the sky what do you think i think this is one of those good news stories that that sort of makes me think everything's going to be all right <laughs> well we tend we tend to focus on the good news stuff don't we i mean that's, we do, we that's do. part of what this show's about but uh, yeah you're right this is a real feel-good one isn't it it is do you think it'll be all right in the end with the whole climate change thing do you think we'll just we will adapt we'll be like right this is what we need to do with our aircraft and we'll, you know Got to be running on renewables. Yeah, I mean, I had this conversation in the week with somebody about the fact that we all think technology is going to solve all of our, you know, ills and our woes. Uh, the question is whether we will allow, we, you know, whether we will allow technology to solve our problems. And you think of things like, you know, lab-grown meat or mm-hmm. solar-powered airplanes. Uh, there's so much potential, and it, as, as lots of people say, you know, the technology is already there to help us solve some of this stuff. It's whether our relationship with technology will allow us to do so. Uh, fascinating, develop, you know, fascinating, you know, argument. I think. Um, yes, it is. But, I mean, especially you know, if you go back to your to your last article about the drones, you know, what, you know, flying about, like how people feel about that. This is it. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, yeah. Invasion of privacy, and well, there's a whole host of kind of regulations that need to be drawn up to to really foster the adoption of things like drones and god it, it could be you know some time before we see that happening mm. um yeah interesting very interesting yeah. so lastly what have you got for us Vix? yeah so this is another feel-good story um innovation is one of our favorite topics here on the better business show and here's another one turning china's smog into diamonds um mm. so an artist from the netherlands dan rose Bruzegaard, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm really bad at um, Dutch names, has come up with this kind of cool way to tackle China's air pollution problem. But it does beg the question, how do you turn dirty air into beautiful jewels? Well, apparently you get a seven metre tall tower to suck up the polluted air and clean it at a nano level. Then most of it is released back into parks and playgrounds and it's all lovely and clean. And then the carbon from the smog particles is made into the diamonds. And then the money from the jewellery made with the diamonds will go towards supporting the development and building more smog-free towers. So future of engagement rings, maybe? <laughs> Just a great <laughs> business. And, yeah, uh, our guest on, on last week's show, Elvis and Cressy, um, produces uh, engagement rings using the kind of the pieces of metal found in street cleansing kind of uh, material. Uh, so yeah, lots of people sort of con- trying to connect pollution up with with beautiful things. I love this. I mean, yeah, for- yeah. Forget, forget forget turning air pollution into plastics, which is what we spoke with New Light Technologies about a few weeks ago. Turn it yeah. into diamonds. Just love it. Um, yeah, yeah, if they're listening, love to have you on the show, guys, to actually 
yeah explore this this whole business a bit further but it sounds sounds brilliant yes it does it's i would love you know if, if i had the choice I'd, I'd i'd love that knowing where it's come from you just you just love a diamond ring <laughs> if anyone's offering <laughs> yeah yeah anyone out there with a diamond ring um Vix, as ever, uh, thanks for your insights and your updates. And we'll we'll hear from you again next week. Yep. See you next week. Thanks, Vix. Looking forward to do it all again next week. Uh, Anyway, that's it. That's it for this week. Uh, Thanks again for tuning in. We'll be back again next Monday. So until then, goodbye.